Amen. Amen. You guys may go ahead and be seated. Uh, I will go ahead and explain that. Uh, typically, we would read the uh, passage of Scripture before you uh, this morning, but um, as we're going to see in Leviticus, we're going through uh, a large chunk today. Uh, we're going to go through uh, about two chapters, that is about 34, 35 verses today. Rather than make you stand the entire time I'm reading it this morning, which took me about four and a half minutes, by the way, uh, <laughs> I will just read it as we go and save your legs. So you're welcome. I will still preach 40 minutes, though, so forgive me. So my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our series in the book of Leviticus. And uh, as we've indicated, uh, we're going to be covering some large chunks of it, uh, primarily because some of these passages work very well together. I know it may seem strange to say that uh, two chapters work well together and seem to be one giant sermon, but particularly in these two offerings that uh, Moses would describe before us, uh, these go hand in hand in some respect today. And so as we dive into the text, uh, you'll see that the title is A Free and Generous Offer. And as we begin to look at these passages, we'll see these two offerings, the grain offering and a peace offering, that are being displayed. And in this, as we as people of God and, and as the people of Israel would have done, come before the Lord to freely make of these offerings, uh, the Lord provides some things for us in return for these, proper, uh, these offerings. Now, that's not to say that our relationship with God is transactional. I do this, He does that for me. But rather, that is God responding to a free and generous heart, a heart that has been set free by forgiveness from God, a heart that has been set free by the generosity God has displayed us. And God, when He sees His people worship, when He sees His people truly worship, He responds and provides some blessings upon them. And so as we look at the passages today, you'll see some of those blessings be displayed in the midst of these descriptions of offerings. I also want to make a note that uh, typically this is where we would take of our tithes and offerings. And, well, I think you guys have heard of this thing called COVID so far. Uh, if you feel led to give, you're able to give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give. Or if you would like, uh, we will have our deacons at the rear doors uh, as you're exiting. You're welcome to drop off your offering with them. And so as you feel led to give, however you feel comfortably giving, please take advantage of those and know that uh, what you're doing in regards to giving isn't just helping us keep the lights on or do anything like that, though yes, it does help with that. But the things you're giving allow us to do gospel ministry within our community. The things that we do here aren't just to have a service and keep the doors open, but uh, we do these things so that we can see every man, woman, and child have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And so know that for every dollar you give, 10 cents are going towards mission efforts both here and around the world. That We believe that this 10%, this tithe, this first fruits of what God has blessed us must be poured out into gospel ministry. And so know that I say these things not to say, hey, help pay for Pastor Brian and myself our salaries, because that's irrelevant. What is relevant is that there are people who live within our community who are lost and going to hell because they have not responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. And we want to see those things change within Park Circle. Now, as we begin today, uh, our, our first point is we're looking at these offerings here. We're going to be looking uh, first at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And our first point is that we offer dedication to God. We, as people, offer dedication to God. I'll read these verses for you. You'll see them on the screen as well. Beginning with verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a, its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of God, the Lord's food offering. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of the fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil upon it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made with fine flour with oil. 
and you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar, and the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So here in this section, through these ten verses, we see the grain offering described for us. And as we read that, you might be wondering, well, what is, what is this for? What's the point of this? Well, to get some context, uh, the Hebrew word for grain offering is minka. And this is used to refer to gifts that people gave to a king. You see, this is used to refer as a gift that you would give to a king that you serve. That this is one you says has lordship over your life. You would provide this offering to them. This is also the same word that's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to tribute that's paid from nations to kings they recognize as their Lord. You see, this is an offering that is given to one that you recognize, that you clearly state is not only superior to you, but is one that you're in service to. And so as we see this grain offering, that's one element that is displayed is that Israel is called to make this offering before the Lord because they are in service to the Lord. That's the very heart of worship as we gather together. You see, as we go through the book of Leviticus, we're going to read some things like these offerings and we're going to recognize that some of these stipulations aren't directly applicable to us. We don't have an altar up here for you to burn things on, right? That's against fire codes. We're not allowed to do that anyway. But that's not something we do in the way we worship. But what is still applicable is that God is concerned about people freely giving of what they have. He's concerned about those that say they worship Him, that say they're in service to Him, freely giving of what they have. Now this isn't to say that we're going to talk about something like tithing or anything like that today. What we're talking about is a heart thing. What we're talking about is, are you, as a believer, coming to worship freely offering the things that God has given you? Are you freely giving of your heart, mind, and soul to Him in worship? When you worship, are you rejoicing in celebration that this day is a covenant day? It is one that God has inaugurated so that we gather together each Sunday and are reminded that He is still faithful. It's a day that we gather together to rejoice in His goodness and His grace. It's a day that we gather together knowing that as long as Sundays persist while we're on this earth, God is continuing to be faithful to us. You see, that is what God is concerned about here, our dedication to Him. And when we come together as people of God, we are offering dedication to Him. That just as the Israelites would come and in this grain offering offer these grain goods to say, I am committing, I am dedicating my heart, mind, and soul to the Lord. We come with our open arms, our open hearts and minds to say that we're dedicating our lives to the Lord. That when we sing songs like Stand in Your Love and Abundantly More, what we are proclaiming is that because I have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I can see these promises fulfilled in my life. That I can stand in the love of God because I know His love is never failing. That I can proclaim that His love is abundantly more because it was so abundant that it sent His Son, Jesus, to die upon the cross for you and I so that we may have life eternal. You see, when we gather to sing, we are celebrating these forgiveness, this forgiveness, this grace that has been shown to us. You see, Israel, when they gather together, they're offering this worship that's due only to God. They're not just saying that God is a superior king. They're not just saying that He is uh, superior to them. They're saying that He is the Lord God Almighty. That if we're going to offer an offering, it will be to Him and Him alone. You see, the entire book of Leviticus, its concern through the first half of the book primarily is how we worship when we gather together. The second half of the book of Leviticus is concerned about how we live when we leave worship. And God, in His goodness and grace, as He writes through the book of Leviticus, is concerned about how we worship and how we live. 
You see, we gather together to rejoice and celebrate the goodness of God in the midst of difficulty. We don't just sing of our dedication to the Lord. We demonstrate it through how we worship and how we live. Now, you might be just wondering, perhaps, we've talked about this grain offering and this sacrifice that they make before the Lord, and you're perhaps wondering, what's it for? Right? This is a time of gathering together and worshiping, and I know that they come forward to give of this offering. What are we doing here? Well, the grain offering is an offering that's provided for worship and gratitude. You see, it's not a required offering because there are some that we see in Leviticus that you have to do, like the burnt offering to atone for your sins. The grain offering is one that you do freely because you are moved by what God has done in your life. It's one to express your worship and gratitude for the goodness of God being poured out in your life. Now, you might be saying, well, that's really nice. That's good, actually. But what's the point of what God is trying to get across here? Specifically, when he starts talking about things, about how to bake it, how to prepare it, this offering of fine flour, what do these things actually mean? Well, there's a lot that we don't necessarily need to, to know about this, but in particular, there's one thing that we need to kind of draw our eyes to, particularly the continual references to fine flour. You'll see throughout these two chapters, there's a, a big reference to this idea of fine flour. And what they're pointing to is something very similar to what we would call your normal all-purpose or baking flour, right? You've probably got this in your pantry. This processed wheat, this processed grain that is to be used in the midst of this offering. Now, as we look at that, you might say, well, that's a normal thing. I can get it for about $2 from Walmart. It's not that big of a deal. For us, no. But we have to take ourselves back and take a step within the lives of Israel as we see this, this fine flour, we recognize that while grain is available, it's an expensive thing to produce. We do it so cheaply here because we have these lovely things called machines, right? When they would produce fine flour, it was done by hand. That you're producing these goods through your own blood and sweat and tears. And then you're going to take all this effort of producing this fine flour so that you can then offer this baked good before the Lord. That really in ancient times, flour in the way we know it is considered to be a luxury item. That people use that when they were wealthy. You know, the rich people have the nice, you know, gold metal flour. We have the great value version over here. This is a luxury for these people. And they're giving of what they have and in abundance to the Lord to honor Him. In fact, we even see this idea of first fruits being displayed here. What's this idea of first fruits, right? This is something that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, throughout the, the Old Testament, that the people of Israel would give of the first 10% of their harvest. The first bit of the harvest that came in, they gave to the Lord as a tithe, as an offering to Him. Now remember I said we're not talking about tithing today because that's not the point of this. But what they are doing is they're saying, Lord, we don't know if the harvest is going to come in. And if you've ever been around a farm or have had a garden, you've gotten the first little bit. Some years you prosper, and some years you don't have so much after it's done. And what the people of Israel are saying is that, Lord, you will do more with 90% than we could do with 100%. And so here it is, Father. We're going to give it to you in trust and confidence that you're going to do something with it. You see, what we believe as God is telling them to make this grain offering, as we look at the Old Testament, that the people are making this grain offering out of the very grain seed that they brought with them. You see, they knew as they left Egypt, they're going to the promised land, right? They've brought things to prepare for this. They're ready to go plant the seeds and take hold of the land that God has given them. And when God calls them to give of this grain offering, what He's saying is, hey, I know you set that aside for the land, you're going to give it now and trust that I'm going to do more of what you have left than the whole thing. And so we see the people of Israel are taking the seed they've set aside for the promised land. At this point, they don't even know if they're going to make it to the promised land. They're simply saying, this is the God who took us out of Egypt, brought us through the Red Seas, and is sustaining us day by day. We're going to trust that He will do more with this than we could ever do. You see, they had no other resources. 
We see as we look through the Old Testament, particularly as we study through Exodus, there was nothing in this desert. I don't know if you've ever seen a desert. There's not a lot to see. It's sand. There's nothing. And we see that God had to provide things like manna day by day so that they could survive and be sustained. That God himself was the one who had to deliver their sustenance. You see, their dedication to God had to be displayed by being fully dependent upon God to provide for them. Let me read a few verses for you. You might recognize some of these from the last year. Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, placing, of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Perhaps this one from James chapter 1 verse 17 will sound familiar. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If that doesn't sound familiar, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, we, we can look back over the, the major books we've looked at over the last year, and we can see a common thread that is being traced right back to the Old Testament, right here in the book of Leviticus. You see, all these verses are marked by our dependence upon God. And as we look at this offering, as we look at the book of Leviticus, I think that it's true that our dedication to the Lord is often equal to our dependence upon the Lord. You see, our dedication to the Lord is often dependent upon our dependence on the Lord. As we've said, the people of Israel in the middle of a desert, there's absolutely nothing. Particularly the desert that they're trapped in just north of Egypt, it's a land of nothing. The only thing that is plentiful in the desert is sand. And while they failed many times throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of stories of their dependence upon God to do what only God can do. Yes, they fail many times, but the thing that we see through the Old Testament is that our dedication to God is often marked and equal to our dependence upon the Lord. And so if you are here and you're saying, I don't feel led to worship, I don't feel like singing. I don't feel like I have anything to rejoice in or to celebrate. The problem is not the Lord. He has not moved. The problem is you. And you believe that you can do it. You believe that you're dependent upon your own heart and spirit. You believe that you do not need a Lord and Savior. That you're just as Israelites are wandering through the desert who are saying, Woe is us, Moses, because you've taken us from a land to die here in the desert. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? They said that a few verses after crossing the Red Sea and seeing God sweep away Pharaoh's armies. The truth is that when we see these verses and we hear that we offer our dedication to the Lord in worship, that doesn't sit well with us sometimes. It doesn't sit well with us sometimes because we're clinging to the American dream that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we can do anything, that we can solve any problem. And while human ingenuity is rather impressive, after all, we put a man on the moon, right? We did, we've done some impressive things as a species. The true measure of our lives is not how much we can depend upon ourselves, but how much we can depend upon Christ Himself. And I would submit to you the times where you would say you're most dependent upon the Lord are the times that you find that you're most dedicated to Him and rejoicing during the times of worship. And so my question for you is, as we look at these verses, is what are you offering to the Lord? Are you offering your dedication and dependence? 
Or are you offering your unrighteousness and self-reliance? Now, as we continue, we see the Lord continue to wrestle with some things in the hearts of His people. You see, these offerings aren't just things that we are to do as we look at the Old Testament, but rather these are things that we're to study and learn about God's intent for our heart and minds. Look with me at verse 11. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you, shall, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant of your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you shall offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering, and the priest shall burn its memorial portion, some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Now here we've got some very clear directions about things that we're to do and not to do in the midst of our food offerings, this grain offering we're providing. And at first glance, you may look at this and think, what does this have to do with me as a believer? I didn't know that today was a cooking class. I'm hearing some things that I need to do and not do in my baked goods. What is it that I'm supposed to learn from this? Well, in this section, we see that God intends for us to offer pure lives to Him. That He intends for us to offer pure lives on this offering. You see, in this section, we see God is directing His people away from using leaven and honey while encouraging them towards using salt in the grain offering. Now, what's He getting at? And I know that if you're like me, you're, you're already concerned because though you may be giving up bread for New Year, you're thinking, I love bread. Does that mean bread's not blessed by the Lord? Well, rest assured, when you get off your New Year resolutions, you can eat bread, and I'm going to explain why but you'll be fine in the next few minutes. The first thing we need to understand is this idea of salt. Why are they using salt within the confines of this offering? You see, today we think of salt as something that's just a spice-giving flavor, right? That It's something that we have either too much or too little of in our food. It's just something we put on the table and we use. Yet we use it so distinctively different than the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, it was used to preserve food and prevent decay. That this was how you preserved the things that you had killed, the harvest you brought in. That you used salt to preserve these things. You see, Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 13, sheds a little bit of light on God's meaning and how it was used. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see, Matthew 5.13 sheds a little bit light on why this salt's important. You see, as Jesus is speaking there in Matthew chapter 5, what he's referring to with the, the salt that has become worthless, it's not that the salt has lost its flavor, it's not that the salt has lost its value in any way, but rather it's that too many impure substances have gotten mixed in with the salt. And now it's worthless for its task of preserving things. Perhaps you can see where this is going. This says so much about our lives and what God intends for us. You see, we're called to live pure lives as salt of the earth. That that's not just used to mean that we're humble, gentle creatures, but it means that we're to be in the midst of the world, arresting corruption and presenting, pre preventing moral decay. That we're called to be agents of redemption into a lost and dying world. That This perhaps sounds familiar to uh, the verses we looked at for some of our, uh, our core values. You know, this idea that we're ambassadors for Christ from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, what God...
about here, what we see Jesus express is that we're to keep the impure things of sin and death out of our lives so that we may be holy as God is holy. You see, now we see that reason for, for salt, why it's necessary, right? Because it keeps things pure. That's what they're bringing the salt for in the offering because it displays a purity before the Lord. It's representing them and their hearts and saying, I am pure because I stand before the Lord, sinless on your behalf, Lord, because you've forgiven me. Now we see this reason for salt. We have to answer the question, why no leaven or honey? Well, as I said, today is going to be a little bit of a cooking class for you. Uh, we're going to explain what this means. You see, leaven is what we would call yeast, right? This is something we would use in baking. And yeast is a fungus that when introduced to a batch of dough, it provides fermentation and it changes the physical properties of the dough. It's how we get lighter, puffier breads, right? The things that you love to eat, they've got a lot of yeast in them. You don't really know what it is, but you know it's there or you know it's not there, right? Fermentation, this process that occurs when you introduce yeast into a dough, this is a form of decay and within the ancient Hebrew mind is related to death. Honey's also used the same way in baking and even in making alcoholic beverages that they would use in pagan worship. Now as we look at this, the offering is yes, an offering, but it's also an example of the people themselves and their relationship with the Lord. You see, God is saying these things are even remotely connected to sin and death. I want nothing to do with them in my offering. You throw those away and you bring what is pure and righteous before me. In that same way, there are things in your life that are of sin and death and I want nothing to do with that. Kill it off, cast it away, remove it and bring to me only that which is pure. You see, God does not desire for His people to be impure. He doesn't desire for anything to get in the way of His relationship with us. And doesn't this perhaps tell us how much we should fight sin in our lives? How hard we should fight against sin and death? I told you today is a cooking class, and I'm going to explain a little bit about why that is. I bake a little bit, if you don't know. Um, my family loves my baked goods. If you haven't had any, I'm sorry. We'll blame it on COVID. But it's amazing how little yeast is needed to change a recipe. You know, I uh, make cinnamon rolls uh, for my family and for some people in the office. And I can make a giant batch of cinnamon rolls. Over 60 cinnamon rolls. That's three to four pans of cinnamon rolls to give out using only a tablespoon of yeast. You see, a tablespoon of yeast can lead to over 60 cinnamon rolls being produced. Now, while I know the, the point of this isn't to talk about my baking skills, rather it's to talk about what God's doing in our midst, but I think that you can see that it doesn't take much sin in our lives to cause our own sinful actions and thoughts to rise to the surface, Right? You see, if a little bit of leaven can produce so much dough, what can a little bit of sin produce in our lives? What can a little bit of sin produce in our hearts and minds? What can a little bit of sin lead to in our actions? You see, God wants His people to be pure, not for His sake, because He is pure, He is holy. He wants his people to be pure for our own sake. You see, God in the midst of these offerings is establishing, yes, rules for worship. But he's also establishing patterns for how we're to live. God is uniquely and distinctly concerned about his people's purity. And he is telling us very clearly, the things that must be found in your life, the things you would offer before me, is your pure and undefiled religion. Is a pure heart and mind that has been cleansed of sin and death. Now as we come forward and we offer, 
our dedication to God, as we offer our pure lives before the Lord, and we freely give of those in worship, God responds. He provides blessing upon us. And again, as I said, this isn't a transaction. This is us worshiping and rejoicing in the overflow of what God has done for us. And God, as any father is moved by his children, says, I rejoice, I'm grateful for what's happening here. Let me provide blessings and good things upon you. Let me provide some grace and peace upon you in offering, in response to your offering. You see, chapter 3 is about the peace offering. And what we're going to see right here in the next few verses specifically is that when we offer our dedication and pure lives to God, we receive peace with God. We receive peace with God. Look at me at chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the side of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long globe of the liver that he shall rec- remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar at the top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So here we're introduced to this peace offering. And I think it's interesting that we see this right after the grain offering. Uh, Specifically, we have to remember that the grain offering is a voluntary offering to provide worship before the Lord. That it's not something that's required to do. There's no set rhythm that you have to do it in. It is simply the grain offering is offered because you want to celebrate and worship before the Lord. The peace offering is another voluntary offering. This is expressing the worshiper's praise for God's deliverance in his or her life. For this offering, it's so similar to some of the other ones we've talked about. You can offer some different things so that all people come before the Lord. There are no barriers to God and His grace for people, regardless of where they're at. We see Him give some details of how we're to offer this animal. Very similar to the burnt offering, we see that there's a hand on the animal, signifying a transferring of sin, right? That they're casting blood upon the altar, showing that the life of the animal belongs to the Lord. The kidneys, the liver, the fat, they're burned on the altar to demonstrate they belong to the Lord alone. They're reflecting the power and sustenance that He provides, this life that He gives both the animal and us. It's also important to note that this is not just simply done first thing in the morning. You see where he gives some specific directions on how to cast it on top of the burnt offering, right? This is done after the priests have offered the burnt offering for all the people of Israel, saying collectively, we are broken, sinful people. We need forgiveness. Let's offer this burnt offering before the Lord, and then we come before by offering this peace offering. You see, what God is drawing a direct line for us to understand is that we cannot have peace with God if we are not forgiven by God. We cannot have peace with God if we are not forgiven by God. You see, as we look at the Old Testament, these rites and rituals, these things that that God is telling His people to do is not just this dog and pony show. You see, the point of it is to show God's people that you cannot be righteous separate from God's holy and perfect righteousness. That the point of the law is to show that if you try to live in a perfect, righteous, holy way on your own power, you will fail and fall into sin. Why? Because no one is perfect but the Lord God Almighty. And we, as redeemed people of God, need His forgiveness, His mercy and grace upon us so that we can find peace in this life. And so this peace offering begins with us receiving peace from God. 
In the following verses, we see some other things that we receive. Specifically, we receive fellowship with God. Look with me at verse 6. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of the offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the side of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys of the fat that is on them, at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand upon its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys of the fat that is on them at the loins and the long globe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Now, I know as you read that, you're thinking, one, this is the most that I've ever learned about how to break apart an animal. God is quite thorough in explaining this to his people. But you see, the, the point of this, this section, and why we receive fellowship with God, specifically is that this peace offering is also symbolic of a shared meal with the Lord. See, perhaps you caught this as we were reading this, but we see in there that in the midst of this offering, we see the priest, the worshiper, the person who's coming and presenting the offering, along with the worshiper's families and guests, all partake of the animal's meat here. After it's been prepared properly for them, they together eat of it. They have a shared meal, what we as Baptists would call a potluck or fellowship. And in this, God is showing that he's provided a means to have fellowship with his people. You see, this is the desire of the Lord in forming a relationship with us and in redeeming his people. He wants to commune with us. He wants to know us. Throughout this chapter, in six different places, the offerings referred to as a food offering. Now, no, the people of Israel did not believe that God was actually going to come and consume the food. They, they were faithful. They were religious. They're not stupid. Rather, it's a figure of speech that's alluding to the fellowship of the worshiper with God in the setting of a shared meal. You see, in ancient times, this shared meal is a point of covenant loyalty and agreement between two parties. That when two parties would make a deal and they both agree to it, they would sit down and have a shared meal together. We still do this in our culture. Every wedding you've ever been to had a reception afterwards. Why? Because we are celebrating this covenant loyalty, this agreement between two parties to covenant together and we have a meal to celebrate and seal that. It's why when you go make business deals and you do all this to celebrate... What do you do? You go get food. It's ingrained within our culture and God is displaying that in this act of worship, we fellowship together. Jesus uses the same language as he talks about the Lord's Supper. Over in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, it reads, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, this section of Scripture within the Lord's Supper, as we've partaken of the Lord's Supper, this is the means of a spiritual communion with God provided by the offering of the Lord's body. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do so as an example of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. His body was broken, His blood was shed so that we could have the debt of sin paid for. But we also do this in remembrance of God's willingness to pursue fellowship with us. 
We do this in remembrance of God's willingness to pursue fellowship with us. You see, God so desired for you and I to be a part of His family that He would send His only begotten Son, Jesus, to live on this world, to walk this earth, to live a perfect life that you and I could not, and that He would go to the cross, an innocent man, and die upon the cross, be buried in a grave, so that God could pursue a fellowship with us. You see, He willingly and freely sent His Son Jesus to die for us so that you and I may have fellowship with the Lord. That brings us to our final point. Specifically, as we make these offerings, we receive, yes, we receive peace with God. Yes, we receive fellowship with God. But what seals us in this relationship is that we are forever with the Lord. Look with me at these last two verses. Verse 16. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statue forever through your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. You see, Moses, who is the writer of Leviticus, ends with these final words on on fat and blood. And Frankly, as you look at this, it might look a little out of place here. You know, but we've looked at the offerings. We see that there's something that is being demonstrated to teach us. You see, the people of Israel are told here very clearly they're not to eat of the fat or the blood. Both are to be offered up before the Lord. Both are to be given to God upon the altar. Well, why? What does this display? What could this possibly show us? Well, we'll see later in Leviticus, in, in chapter 17, uh, specifically that blood is equated with life. You see, blood is equated with life. Since life is a gift of God, blood, the, the manifestation of this gift, should not be eaten but be given back to God, who is the source of all life. This fat's to be offered and burned in the offering, and this, as it says, is a, is a symbol of God's power. Now, where do we get that from? Well, in ancient cultures, and you have to remember, ancient cultures are a little weird sometimes, just like ours is. They believed that the fat of an animal represented its power. The chubbier your animal, the stronger it was. I wish that was true, I know. But the chubbier your animal, the stronger and more powerful it was. And when they say we offer the fat before the Lord, we're saying that, that our God who has power over life and death gets it all. That our God who has power over life, He should be the one who receives this offering of the blood. Our God who has the power to bring all things to fulfillment, He received this offering of the fat to demonstrate, to express to those around us that our God has power over life and death. You see, what God is telling the people of Israel to do is to worship in a way that is unique. One, to remind them, yes, that they are to celebrate and rejoice before the Lord because He has power over life and death. But to also show those who have gathered around them, the nations that are around Israel, to show those that we worship in this way because our God has power over life and death. They're raising a flag before the rest of the nations, clearly proclaiming, this God we serve is the one true God, and your gods are a bunch of idols. The only God who has power over life and death is ours. You know, these verses remind me of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Uh, these verses read, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, 
how much more were the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, what God is getting at here, what He's trying to get at very clearly throughout the entire Old Testament for His people and those who are around Israel, is there is one path forward through redemption and righteousness, and that is through Jesus Christ. That even these sacrifices that are being made are not being made because they have any salvific effect. They don't provide any salvation but they are being made in anticipation of the one who will come to provide salvation, Jesus. And just as the writer of Hebrews has said here, if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer is enough to purify the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, these offerings are but a pale shadow of what God was going to do through Jesus Christ when He came to this earth, went to the cross, and died for our sins. And today we have the opportunity to rejoice not in light of this pale shadow, this imitation of the one who is to come, but in the full light of the revealed glory of Jesus Christ. That you and I have opportunity to celebrate and sing this last song today, rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And today what is available to us is what has been available every day for our entirety of our lives. That is forgiveness of sins that has been bought for us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so today we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to respond to the grace of Christ. And what I would submit before you is that every man, woman, and child who is here today, who is watching online, will respond to the grace of God. You see, our responses will be marked by either a yes or no. Some of us will respond yes and rejoice in the forgiveness that Christ has given us. And we'll sing this last song, go come to the altar, celebrating that the one who was offered on the altar was Jesus Christ who paid for the debt of our sin and shame. And because of that we are found to be righteous and holy and pure before the Lord. What others of us will say is no, I will not receive this offering. No, I will reject this offering and live in my sin and shame. No, I'll turn away from the free gift that is the grace of God and continue on my own road. You see, every man, woman, and child will choose to respond today. And ultimately, power on how to respond will be is in your hands. Because what the Lord has done, He has come near to the one yard line and said, here is the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Will you receive of this today? And all we have to do is reach out and grasp those hands. And it's ours. And so my question for you today is, what will your response be? Will you choose to, yes, trust in the finished work of Christ, rejoicing in the power and beauty of the gospel? Or will you choose to say no and to reject the free gift of grace that is being offered to you? Here in the next few minutes, we're going to have a time of corporate prayer. Our band's going to come back up and after our prayer, they're going to lead us in a time of worship where we're going to sing of the God who has given Himself upon the altar to bear the weight of our sin and shame. In this time of prayer, we're going to have some silent prayer. That is, you and I will be quiet and we'll simply hear what God is telling us. I'll close us with a few words. 
of prayer together and we'll sing the goodness of God. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you today. Even perhaps as some of us who are here, who are listening or watching online, aren't aware of how grateful we're to be, we're still thankful for you, Father. We're resting in confidence that as we come before you to make an offering of our hearts, minds, and souls, that you will be joyful in receiving this offering. And in your goodness, you'll graciously pour out upon us your grace, mercy, forgiveness, and kindness. Lord, as I've said today, each and every one of us will make a decision. We will have a response to you and the free gift of your grace today. Lord, I say this boldly and clearly. I pray that... Every man, woman, and child's response today is yes. That yes, we will rejoice in this free gift that you offered of Christ Jesus going before us, laying himself on the altar so that we may have life eternal. This promise that you've sealed before us with his shed blood and his broken body, ensuring that for all generations, the name that is proclaimed that can save is Jesus and Jesus alone. So Father, may that be the name that we exalt today. May that be whom we proclaim clearly and boldly about, because we have received this free gift of grace this forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus. May we clearly sing these words with confidence and assurance that we serve a wonderful Savior. Father, may you bless us in this time of worship. And may we make much of you. We pray these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen.